tennis is back in a big way. Melbourne's back in a big way. It's wonderful. It's great. This is exactly what tennis needs. The greatest athlete of all time. Goffs at the net. Up the Scurrying to get there as a suck. Up the line for yeah. another winner. The great champion is three. Djokovic, yeah! What an amazing piece of sporting theatre. Hello, I'm John Huvenars. Welcome to the AO Show. On today's episode, Djokovic weathers the Kyrgios storm for Wimbledon title number seven. And he never panicked once. I mean, against that sort of relentless serving from Nick, you know, that's not easy to do. Rabaikina rises. Kazakhstan's first queen of the All England Club. I can't believe still and uh, maybe one day in a few days I sit down and I realise what I did. Todd Woodbridge catches up with Leighton Hewitt on the 20th anniversary of his Wimbledon title. I knew I was the best grass court player in the world. Plus, celebrating 70 years since Frank Sedgman's Triple Crown. Winning the three titles in the one year is something special. Turn out to be history making. That's all ahead on the AO Show. I've said it many times, you know, this tournament is uh, extra special for me because it has been the first tournament that I've ever watched as a kid that got me to start playing tennis. Um, so I don't take any wins for granted, particularly not in, in Wimbledon. In contrary, actually, it, it feels Every time feels a bit different, um, especially in its own way. Of course, having family and close people in my life here to share this victory with them, it was, uh, was beautiful. Well, Novak Djokovic has added a fourth consecutive Wimbledon title to his collection of now seven, following a drama-filled four-set victory over Nick Kyrgios. It follows Elena Rybikina's historic triumph over Ons Jabeur in the women's final, becoming the first Kazakh to win a major title. Joining me to discuss both of these results and what they mean going forward is commentator Mark Petchy. Welcome, Petch. Uh, the morning after a gripping men's final, what's been the, the response in Wimbledon and, and in London? Yeah, quiet morning after for me, to be honest. It might have been a little bit more uh, head-heavy for Todd Woodbridge because he was hosting the Wimbledon Ball last night. So uh, so let, we'll have to ask Todd at another stage. But, um, look, I think it was just – it was a fantastic tournament. I think there were so many kind of different threads going into it, obviously, and as it sort of developed with Nick having such an amazing run through the tournament as well, um, he was answering a lot of questions. And, obviously, just at the end of the end of the day, just couldn't quite get over the finishing line. But given the fact that it was his – first ever Grand Slam final I thought he performed incredibly well it was a fascinating battle really an intimidating first set display from Kyrgios matched by an impressive second set from Djokovic but the energy on center court there really seemed to lift a notch in in the third set which had all the fireworks many had expected including numerous crowd and umpire interactions with Nick, uh, where do you think this match was won and lost for the respective players? I, I think your overall summary of that was absolutely perfect. I think it had it had everything that we wanted. I think it had a pretty, to be honest, had a pretty focused Nick as well. I thought he came out of the blocks incredibly uh, calm, given the fact that it's his first major final. And obviously, you know, I think you also have to remember this is the surface that he obviously feels as though he's got the best chance of winning a major on as well. So with that comes a lot of pressure because, you know, he's not necessarily going to get that many more shots at the other majors at the moment. So, you know, to, to come out there and play such a clean first 
first set against Novak was uh, was a tribute to his maturity, his standard of tennis, his ability to serve and, and take advantage of it. Um, so I think, you know, given the fact that he could put his best tennis on the court out of the gates isn't necessarily what's happened to a lot of people in their maiden major final. So, you know, it just again underlines just Nick's qualities um, on a tennis court. Um, and it also showed us, you know, Novak's ability to come back from a set down in a major final as well. I know he's lost a couple from being a set up against Stan Wawrinka, but he's also shown incredible fortitude over the years um, to, to come back from a set down when others perhaps were panicking. Um, and, he, and he never panicked once. I mean, against that sort of relentless serving from Nick, you know, that's not easy to do. I know Novak's the best server returner that we've ever had, but, you know, still to have the ability to not panic and wait for Nick to perhaps just start worrying if his opportunity was going away, again, is a tribute to to somebody like Novak, who, again, also had different pressures. I talked about Nick maybe not having that many more chances um, at majors on other surfaces at this moment in his career. Who knows what this is going to do for him in terms of... Uh, being able to kind of bridge that gap but also for Novak he's not sure if he's not going to play the next couple of majors as well so for him to chase down Rafa's 22 majors that was a a huge day for him yesterday um, and he's handled the pressure incredibly well. Yeah I was going to ask you a bit more about that later on but let's just uh, stay with Kyrgios for the meantime. I feel like if I'd won today I would have struggled with motivation Um, you know I feel like I was being I've been told my entire life you know winning Wimbledon um, is the ultimate achievement and for someone like me you know I'm not like a young guy like Sinner or someone or Alcaraz who've come on tour recently and gone deep at slams it's taken me 10 years almost 10 years of my career to finally get to the point of playing for a grand slam and coming up short so I feel like if I had won that grand slam I think I would have lacked a bit of motivation to be honest you know coming back at, for other tournaments like 250s and stuff I would have really struggled to you know I kind of achieved the greatest pinnacle of what you can achieve in tennis but my level's right there. You know, people probably were expecting me to have something happen today, but I came out in the first set and I looked like I was the one who'd been played, who had played that, you know, and a, and a, a lot of finals. You know, um, I thought I dealt with the pressure pretty well. Where does this leave Kyrgios? 27 years old, it was his first major final. As you said, silenced a fair few doubters by getting this far, but what does he need to do to actually taste Grand Slam glory? Probably a little bit like other players, to be honest, Jonathan, over the years. They need to play in an era that doesn't uh, contain Rafa and, and Novak still at their very best. I mean, I think that they've shown over the years that they're not just mentally the best players out there, but they're also the most complete players that arguably the game's ever had. Um, you know, so, you know, we've seen it with, with Novak yesterday. I mean, his net net play is astonishingly solid and the same can be said for Rafa. You know, there's, there's this big thing about just them being able to dominate psychologically, but I would totally argue against that and say it's their skill set that has allowed them to win 22 and 21 majors respectively. And, and we saw that yesterday, um, you know, Nick up at net isn't quite the same sort of fearsome sight as it is, you know, when Novak's coming in and Novak's ability to kind of find um, a completely different rhythm on his serve to Nick's forehand, you know, tactically he was so astute out there. So, you know, when Nick looks back at the tournament, he's obviously going to just think that it was an A+. But it's not an A plus star, um, and to be an A plus star, he's got to figure out a way to be either Novak or, or Rafa over five sets. Um, and you know, there's going to be parts of his game, particularly I feel up at net, that he's going to have to really work hard at 
in the off season um, to to make it as good as it needs to be to give him some more options out there because the rest of the game, as we saw in general, is pretty good. But there were times in the match where he didn't and didn't look as though he was going to be able to stay in rallies as long as Novak and be able to come away with the point more often. There wasn't the fear factor once they got into exchanges that you need against those players. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in a best of five set match at Grand Slam level, which Kyrgios referred to in, in his press conference saying that, you know, in best of three, it's a lot easier to put the uh, the foot on the throat. He also mentioned how difficult it had been to block out all the external noise on social media, particularly given that he didn't play the semi-final. How much of a factor was that aspect? The uh, over-analysis perhaps from Kyrgios, maybe playing it through too much in his in his mind? Yeah, I actually said that when he got the 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 walkover from Rafa. I, I actually felt as though that that may not be a great thing for him in terms of just being able to sort of sit on that, percolate, marinate in the fact that he's in a Grand Slam final for one extra day. I mean, obviously you're in such a rhythm in general in these majors where you don't, you know, you have a day off. The, you know, it's a quick time to decompress, get your sort of game back together, and then you're back on the match court. I think for Nick that was actually quite tricky. It was good on one hand, obviously, because one of the question marks around him has been can he play seven matches, best of five at a major, and be physically strong enough at the back end of it to be able to come through. We don't know that answer because he only played six matches. Um, so we still don't know that. And, and to get through Rafa, to get through Novak would have been a whole different proposition anyway for Nick. So, you know, that's still a, a part of the story, a narrative that we don't really know right now. But in terms of what you're asking me about the, the time that he had to think about it I don't think it was easy for him you know I mean this kind of came out a little bit out of left field for him in terms of being in the final given how little he's played it is again another tribute to his immense talent that he is able to play as infrequently as he is and still come away with some incredible runs at these tournaments so um, but yeah I think that was a that was an unknown factor and, and that's why winning these tournaments is never easy it's never straightforward I mean you know for Novak how many times now in the last couple of years as he come back from two sets of love down to win a major a couple of times at the French a couple of years ago, uh, obviously against Yannick here as well. He's just more hardened to being able to deal with situations that come up and, and, and you have to kind of figure out a way and as he's done it so many times. But for Nick, that was, that was good and bad news for him really when Rafa pulled out. So Djokovic moves to major title 21 and back within striking distance, you might say, of Nadal, who was forced to withdraw with that abdominal injury. The Djokovic victory all the more significant, I guess, that in all likelihood he won't be competing at the US Open uh, this year. But we've sort of been, you know, we've had the numbers there, 19, 20, 21, 22 for a few years now. Do you think we're kind of overdoing the the great race, the title race between the top three? Is it sort of time that we started to look at the individual unique attributes of the players and stopped worrying about the titles? I think so. And I've said it for a while now. I kind of feel like the the sort of inter-rivalry of, of the fans actually in some ways detracts a little bit from from what we've seen from the players over the over the years. I mean, obviously, it's incredible to think that, you know, Novak's overtaken Roger uh, in terms of major wins, wasn't he? Sort of had one and Roger had 16 at one stage and now he's obviously sitting on 21. Roger's been, uh, in inverted commas, relegated to third in this race in terms of, you know, the numerical numbers. But you can never, you can never tell people how somebody made you feel. And I think that, you know, that will always be in Roger's favour, um, you know, for, for most of these players to be honest I mean it's just it's just been part of the the story between the rivalries but I do think that 
you know, uh, comparison is the thief of joy, as it says. And I think that the comparisons that have constantly been coming up between everybody about who's better, who's the greatest, who's this, have really kind of taken away a little bit at times from just how great a tennis player they are. Everyone's trying to kind of fight for airspace and column inches about why their player is better than the other player. A, we can't have a greatest of all time because you can't compare Rod Laver to this this era. How many would Rod have won if it hadn't have been the amateur and pro era? How how many would he have won if it was, you know, currently on the surfaces that we have compared to three being on grass? You know, there's it's just such an irrelevant um, argument and, and it detracts from everything. But just, yes, I, I, I kind of feel like that we, we should just be giving way more respect to to Novak in particular for the ability to have elbowed his way into, you know, what was, you know, was a couple of champions just going about their business, just collecting Grand Slams for fun. And he kind of muscled in for a little bit. And then Novak has obviously just kind of come into that argument and has stamped his authority on it for the last, you know, decade, really, in many ways. It's just been an incredible revival from from. But yes, uh, the quality of their tennis sometimes gets lost in the numbers game, the arms race of how many majors people are going to win. And I've tried to say it a lot of times when I've been working is like that their tennis is at times of a level that just, you know, the other players cannot simply get to. And 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 that's why they've been the best of all time, you know, best of this generation, because it's not just their mentality. It's the quality of shot. I mean, how many people can return Nick's serve so consistently for such a long period of time without being so so technically proficient? And, and that's something that Novak showed yesterday. Yeah, really well surmised indeed. So it was business as usual in some ways for Djokovic, as you say. But in the women's game, we have uh, a new queen of Wimbledon and a breakthrough victory for Elena Rabaikina. I can't believe still. And uh, maybe one day, in a few days, I sit down and I realize what I did. But for now, I'm super proud of myself and, uh, of course, of my team and everybody who worked with me. Uh, it's been tough, but uh, I think we made it all together. An incredible moment for Kazakhstan and for her. It, it, yes, it was. Uh, listen, I, you know, ever since Ash decided, unfortunately, to pull up stumps and uh, and pull out the irons for a, for a while, it's it was always going to leave the door open. Um, obviously, Iga's been as dominant as as anyone can be in that situation, pretty much straight out of the blocks. Um, and, you know, somewhat sadly that we don't see that rivalry actually in the last couple of months. I would have loved to have seen Ash against Eager. I think it would have been one of those great, um, great sort of sporting rivalries that would have would have really um, captured people's attentions for a while. Uh, definitely different sort of styles, but it has opened the door for these opportunities for, for other players. Rebecca has taken it here at Wimbledon. And the great thing about it, Jonathan, is that we do talk about how universally the surfaces have come together and and there's not the difference that it was and it's true they're not it isn't that they're not as different as they used to be back in the day but at the same time there's clearly a difference even though Rebecca was one of the hardest hit when COVID came back in 2020 she was on an incredible run of form and it kind of really kind of stopped her in the tracks like Gail Monfils on the men's side to be honest um, she she's obviously had quality but you know, she hasn't necessarily shown it on the other surfaces in recent times, yet Wimbledon has given her that platform and she's come through and won it in some style. 
So we look at the women's game now and some critics might say that the the WTA is in need of a, of some more heroes, you know, some more highly marketable big names. What's your position on this argument and and where should we look to? Listen, rivalries drive drive the sport. Rivalries drive it. Rivalries, as I said earlier, with the men's, maybe they've detracted a little bit from um, from the greatness that they perform on the court day to day. But what they do do is make sure that you it manifests itself in a big polarization of a large fan base against another one, and and with that drives the sport. I mean, you look at across the board over F one. You look at all that you know. Look at the tribal nature of of AFL of the Premier League football here. It's a huge part of what you need to have a successful sport is to have those rivalries out there. You don't want them to pally. And that's why Nick at times has been unbelievably great for the men's game, even when he hasn't been going that deep in majors because he's created that dynamic. And that is the one thing that is missing from the women's tour at the moment is a, a superb rivalry uh, with a little bit of edge necessarily. And and that's why I say I'm, I'm sad that Ash pulled up stumps because I think that rivalry could have developed with Eager uh, in that way. Would it have been quite as intense as the the Rafa Novak and Roger Novak uh, rivalries? Probably not, but it would have been there. And I think that going into every major saying, you know, that you're not looking forward to a specific clash potentially when the draw comes out does hurt the tour a little bit. You can't keep saying, oh, you know, anyone can win it, anyone can win it, because you're just not tagging, you know, anybody that's, that, that, that you know, you're not just setting the scene for something amazing that's going to happen, a nice little volcanic eruption right at the back end of a, a major. So, yes, they, they need somebody or, and some people to be a bit more consistent in getting through because that's what will be a massive driver for the WTA. Just out of interest, who was your pre-tournament prediction for the women's? Um, in all honesty, I don't think I picked one because I just, I, I just, I couldn't honestly sit there and think. I mean, you know, Eager was as, as good a choice as I could make at that stage because the courts were looking incredibly firm. They didn't have the same weather patterns coming in as they did last year. It's still a natural surface, so I thought that Eager might, obviously, being a junior Wimbledon champion, had a good chance. But yeah, I mean, I was, I was of the same opinion as a lot of people. Fifteen, twenty people could have come away with the title at, at, at Wimbledon. Obviously, Todd, Todd's taken a lot of credit for calling Rybakina it uh, in the fourth round but any fool can do that <laughs> I would be sure to pass it on if he's not already listening to <laughs> he's already had a well-deserved holiday but I think you're heading off for one today so we wish you all the best as you recuperate from a, a big grass court season and we look forward to catching up in maybe the uh, the American swing as we head to the US Open look forward to it Jonathan thanks a lot It's been two decades since Leighton Hewitt scaled the stands of Centre Court at Wimbledon, recreating Pat Cash's iconic climb in 1987. The Aussie Davis Cup captain recently returned to the scene of his 2002 triumph, and Todd Woodbridge caught up with Hewitt on the 20th anniversary of his achievement. So Leighton, here we are in the most prestigious court in the world. What is it like being able to come out and play here? Oh, it's amazing. Um, for me, coming here the first time in juniors, you know, I'd come in the grandstand here and just sort of sit, and I'd seen it so many times on TV and listened to Nuke over the years commentate uh, so many big matches, and I just dreamt always of being here and at least watching a match. And 
and for me to get the opportunity to, to play on centre court um, at all throughout my career, I'll never forget the first time I played and it was against the great Boris Becker as well in the third round of Wimbledon, my first ever main draw in 1999 and um, I lost that match, but just walking out with a guy that has that aura and presence, and he basically treated this court like it was his own. He was in his own living room. So um, it's something really special. You feel the history and tradition, uh, even waiting before you actually walk out. Um, behind the fence there, the far end, onto centre court. And uh, obviously when you come around that corner and then the crowd sees the two players walking out, it's, it's something really special. It gives you goosebumps every time you step out there. It's electricity, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's incredible. and and. To think, you know, making that final walk on the final Sunday of the tournament, um, that's something you, know, you only dream of. And, and in 2002, for me to get the opportunity to do that uh, was something really special. Leighton, it's your 20th anniversary. Time's gone quite quickly, yeah. hasn't it? <laughs> what are your memories of that special tournament, but that special day? Uh, there was a lot of pressure and expectation the whole tournament. It was... Um, you know, my first time at Wimbledon going in as the world number one and the number one seed coming into the tournament uh, it was completely different to the year before when I won at Flushing Meadows at the US Open and I was the real underdog going into uh, the quarter, semi and final there, whereas uh, this was a different feeling. Um, it was about controlling my emotions as much as anything, um, but I had incredible self-belief over those two weeks. I knew I was the best grass court player in the world at that time. I played exceptional tennis at Queen's two weeks earlier to win that title. Um, and the semi-final in the end against Tim Henman, uh, my old sparring partner, we played plenty of big matches and um, I knew that I, at that stage I'd never lost to Tim as well so it gave me a lot of confidence going into that match but it was the Aussies against the Poms you know and that's what it was built up for and and in a lot of ways old Henman Hill out there and the Aussies were trying to claim that it was Hewitt's Hill and, and all this was going on in the background but it was like an Ashes battle and with my personality and the way that I went about my tennis it probably brought out the best of me as well um, and so I came out and played an incredible match and, and in a lot of ways when you look back that was probably the final in some ways um, but I couldn't get too far ahead of myself because I had to play David Nalbandian in the final at the time not a lot of people knew Nalbandian I grew up with him though, we were the same age, we played juniors together, I knew how good Nalbandian was, he was one of the best juniors in the world. It didn't surprise me that he came in and his first grass court tournament's gone through to a Wimbledon final. He, he had that ability and we, we saw it later on in his career, the next five to ten years, how good a player he was, he was capable of beating anyone. Um, but it was more about myself going out there and having that belief and, and I was able to stamp the authority on the match early. and. and um, that's what I needed to do on that particular day and, and it was really not trying to get too far ahead of yourself. You know, you put the first set in, in your back pocket uh, and about I was up a set in a break and we had a rain delay and we weren't lucky enough to have the roof back then. So that was one of the tougher times because you go back in the locker room and I couldn't think about the big picture. You know, that I was only a set and a half away from holding up this prestigious trophy. Um, and that was probably one of the toughest stages uh, mentally to go through. Um, but, yeah, an incredible feeling when you finally win that match point. And, yeah, it was down this end. It probably wasn't my most remarkable point um, to win it on. But in the end, it was kind of a true grit point where I just went in and refused to miss and ended up drawing the error. Had you thought, you, you dreamt about winning. But had you thought about what you're going to do if that moment happened and what the celebration was going to be like, or was it spontaneous? 
Yeah, not really. No, it's spontaneous. I was really telling myself, I still remember serving two sets to love up, 5-2, up a double break in the third set. And I sat down, I had to come down and serve down this end. And I just kept telling myself, you don't have this yet, you don't have this yet. You've got to play one point at a time. It was the old, old cliche, but you just go back into that moment. Um, and I guess I'd played quite a few big matches, especially in Davis Cup ties leading up to that as well. So they, those memories and you know that focus was still in the back of my mind. Um, um, but yeah, I, you know, I guess I always dreamt of climbing into the sands like Cashy did. You know, I'd watched that Wimbledon final, Cash against Lendl, so many times um, in '87, and um, for me, just to you know go up there and climb and see all the people that you know had worked so hard to give you the opportunity to be out here. You know, it's a real team atmosphere, and, and there's a lot of hard work behind the scenes to to get the best players on the world to go out there and perform at their best every single time. What is, what is it about this court that makes it so special to play on? Uh, it's incredible. I think the atmosphere means, you know, every time you walk out here, it's a packed house. Uh, it's an incredible feeling to, you know, you get goosebumps walking out. But I think it's the whole build-up, the, the walk through the members' enclosure as well from the... From the um, the members' locker room, uh, when you actually get brought, there's people that will walk you through. And it's quite intimidating for players that haven't done it before, you know, because you actually walk through the members, right past the members' dining room, down the stairs, you see the trophy sitting there in the ca glass cabinet as you walk past down the stairs. You see the uh, Rupert Kipling poem, uh, the two famous lines right under there, which John Newcomb told me when I was... 12 or 13 years old at his ranch in New Braunfels, Texas. Uh, he gave me that poem and he actually said, these are the two lines you'll see when you play at Wimbledon Centre Court soon. And, um, you know, so I always took a moment to just sort of take that in every single time I stepped out onto Centre Court. So, um, no, it meant a lot every time walking out. Obviously the Royal Box as well. It's, it's all the different things that uh, until you actually come here and play, you probably don't appreciate as much. Um, but once you've done it once, you just get this appetite that you want to be out here every single time. And um, you love it when the, the schedule comes out the night before and you get, you know, scheduled on Centre Court. It's something really special. If you thought the build-up to this year's men's final was dramatic, spare a thought for Australian legend Frank Sedgman, who in 1952 survived a car accident on the way to the match. Sedgman's courtesy vehicle was involved in a minor accident en route to the All England Club that fateful July summer's day, setting up what was to become a memorable day for the then 24-year-old. He would go on to clinch the elusive Triple Crown that year, triumphing in singles, doubles and mixed doubles all at the same event, a feat that had only been achieved by two men before him and by none since. Now 94 years of age, Frank, together with his wife Jean, joined the AO Show for a walk down memory lane, 70 years in the making. 52 was a big year because we got married in 52. The wedding was a big day. It was at Turek Presbyterian Church here. When I arrived in the car with my father, there were people everywhere. Even coming out of the church, we got photos. and You can't see us for the people all around us. And so after we married, we left to go to Europe. And I played around Europe, and uh, I was runner-up in the French Championship. And I played the guy, Drobny. He was a good clay court player. And I played him in Monte Carlo in Italy. And I beat him there, so I thought, oh, 
I must have had the chance at Wimbledon. Yes, I was pretty nervous on the final day, sitting in the box. All the, the Australian players had left to go to other tournaments, so I was there by myself. I lost the first set against him. That was a bit of a worry. <laughs> I thought, gee, I don't want to lose this one. After winning the first set, Dropney is always fighting an uphill battle. But he won the next three sets easily. Match point, set one serving at the far end. He wins game, set and match. So Frank Sachman becomes the first Australian to win the title for 19 years and receives the coveted trophy from the Duchess of Kent. It was very exciting, but uh, I hope to see him afterwards. But as Harry Hopkins said, you stay here, you've got another match coming up. I came off the court and went into the dressing room and Harry Hopkins was there. He was the captain of the Davis Cup team. I said, I want to go and see Jean, and she said, no, you're not, you've got to play mixed doubles. And I think he backed me to win the three titles. So I had to wait till after he played the mixed doubles for us to get together. And then, of course, winning the three titles in the one year was something special. It turned out to be history-making. There wasn't a lot of celebrating because we were leaving a, a few days' time to go to America for the USA tournament there. So I was always busy packing up, moving on. <laughs> it's only now we think back about it. We think, well, what have we been doing those 70 years? But um, lots of happy memories, that's for sure. It'll be done again, I'm sure, but uh, it probably won't be broken for quite a while until somebody makes up their mind to play the three titles. That's all for this episode. Join us again next month as we preview the US Open. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review so more fans can enjoy the AO Show.